Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. Good afternoon, everyone. Hi, I'm Alex Jones. I'm the Program Manager at the Equity Foundation. And today, I have the pleasure of introducing our special guests, Equity member Jennifer Vulatic, producer Square Sound Justine Sloan Lees, and our chairperson, Queensland Equity President Asabi Goodman. Before we commence, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nations and pay my respects to all the traditional owners of country and all throughout our country and recognize their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture, and that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I want to take a minute to thank the Equity Foundation's principal sponsor, Media Super. Media Super has supported the foundation since our beginning in the early 2000s. They are your industry super fund and they can help you with your superannuation and provide you with financial advice. If you don't have the contact details, please let me know and I can give you the relevant details. There will be time for questions towards the end of today's conversation. And of course, I'm sorry, we never do have enough time to get through everyone's questions. So now, please now welcome Jennifer, Justine and Asabi. Good morning, everyone. And good morning, Jennifer and Justine. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us today to talk about audiobooks. Now, I know this is a very interesting topic for people because people would like to know how to get into this business. And Jennifer, I know that you work on a number of audiobooks and Justine produce them. So I guess the first question, most basic question, how do you get started? What do you need to do to get into this business? Jennifer, let's ask you first. Well, (laughs) uh, first of all, I think you have to have at your disposal the ability to read fluently. Then you have to have in your arsenal bag of accents and characters. So, I mean, you basically have to put every, every trick of the actor, the actor's trade into audiobook recording. You have to have all of that. So they're the kind of, I suppose, the basic requirements before application. I mean, how you get into it, I, I got into it via what used to be the Royal Blind Society, they're now Vision Australia, and I recorded books for them for many, many years until the decision was made not to employ actors anymore. And interestingly, they, they started, and this is how many audiobook companies, I think, started in the early days. It was literally a narrator, a volunteer narrator, actor, non-actor, often non-actors, going home with a tape recorder and recording their book into the tape recorder. So we've come a long way since then. Uh, it's become quite a business. And, you know, in, in the COVID era, it's uh, really taken off. Audiobook production has really kind of come into its own. So that's, that's how I got into it. And I just started regularly narrating for Vision Australia. And then those books are distributed into the wider world. And then I started being approached by various other uh, publishing houses and studios, one of which was Square Sound, which was formerly Risk. So I've worked with Justine a lot over the years, which is one of my, one of our great pleasures, I think. We have a really good time recording together. That's sort of how I came to it. But I guess in terms of, you know, the practical approach these days, you'll be wanting to get together a, most actors anyway, have a kind of showreel 
uh, of their work. So you'd need to get together an audio showreel of the kinds of things that you narrate. Frequently for any of these bodies, it was the case for Vision Australia and it was also the case for Belinda, for whom I do a lot of recording. You have to go in and put down two or three examples in the studio of different types of books so that they can see your range, they can hear the timbre of your voice, they can see the fluency of your reading, et cetera, et cetera. So there'll generally be an audition process. But I, but I think having a, having, if you don't have an agent, maybe you've got a website, but having on hand an audio reel of some of your work is, uh, is a really good way to start. Add to that. Um, look over my shoulders and look over Jenny's shoulders. What do you see? Do you see books? <laughs> I think being a book person is really a great start. Most of the people I come across who end up being great narrators are people who just have a love of the written language. And, of course, most actors do have that, you know, the performance, the text, you know, but, yeah, being a, being a reader is a really good help. And I think having a good general knowledge is a really good help for, um, you know, broad general knowledge. Uh, curiosity is a really good uh, thing for an audiobook narrator to have, you know, because there'll be references in books who go, oh, what's that a reference to? And, you know, you should look it up. So, yeah, those are things that are also helpful. Now, is having an agent imperative? Is it something that you definitely need to have? Or can you be a free agent in this industry? Look, I mean, speaking from personal experience and having, having had three of, um, I've been lucky, I've had three of the best agents in Australia. And there was a time there when I didn't have an agent. I had gone back to full-time study, left the industry, et cetera, et cetera. Story of my life, not the time for it now. But that was, a, that was a period of a couple of years. And then coming back into the industry, it was very difficult to get any traction without an agent, without an agent's introduction. Mm-hmm. I certainly know people who do function without an agent very, very well. I suspect you have to have pretty stellar promotion, self-promotional skills to do that and the energy to do a lot of um, door knocking and walking. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, you can do it without. It's, it's um, somewhat easier to have that bridging process, that bridging person of an mm-hmm. agent. Look, um, some of our favorite people that we use a lot don't have agents. They're people who previously had agents and then they've kind of pulled back from acting, you know, focus on families and stuff, but we've kept in touch with them. and. Audiobooks are a great thing you can do if you've got family commitments because it's sort of half a day over a week and several of our favourite narrators, we know to schedule them between school drop-off and school pick-up. You know, we get them in, you know, for 9.30, so we've got time to drop the kids off and then we let them out the door by 2, so we've got time to stop at the supermarket. So um, it's it's not essential, but um, look, at Square Sound where I work, um, as the senior audiobook producer and alongside Marianne Plaza, who's our head of production, we very actively try and seek out new voices. So we're always, you know, um, and specialised voices. So we're currently searching for a Samoan man to read a rugby memoir, you know. And so we really try to keep in the loop with what's happening. I saw Cheryl Ho's name flash up before. Hi, Cheryl. Um, Cheryl was a VCA student who I worked with a couple of years ago and she did a book for us earlier this year because she had the voice we were looking for. So we, we knew, let's go look for Cheryl because we know she's out there and she can do it. So, but yeah, and also a lot of actors now have an acting agent and a voice agent, worth pointing out. It's become mm. a much trend over the last 
five years and I was talking to someone recently who does a lot of voice work and he said that he basically had to break up with his acting agent to get a voice agent because the acting agent didn't want to let him go because most 80% of his income was from voice work and audiobooks. <laughs> I have to say that we probably tend to go to the voice agents rather than the acting agents. Mm. Um, on that score, Justine, I think it's uh, my agent, my current agent would agree with this and probably my previous agents, all the, pretty much all the audio work, maybe not the commercial, but um, book narration work has all come through me, not through my agent. So yeah, that it, it's uh, in terms of audio books, uh, I'm going to shift my position slightly now, having said that you have to have an agent or it's better to have an agent. But I think that, you know, your work is your best advertisement for yourself, um, clearly. Yeah. And having a voice agent is a really good idea. So, Jennifer, you just said that a lot of your audiobook work comes in through you and not via your agent. How do you find out about these jobs? Well, people like Square Sound or Belinda or um, Production Alley or um, uh, a bunch of other recording studios approach me directly, not through my agent. And that's, I, I think that's it's safe to say that's from the body of work that I have out there. I mean, I've been narrating now for 30-something, nearly 40 years. And so there's, there's a lot of my product, my narration product out there that people can listen to and sample if they need to figure out whether they want to use me or not. Yeah, so that's, that's how that happens. Yeah, it's, it's already out there circulating. You know. sure, yeah, sure. We, that would be our experience that we often, we go for a particular person or the author will say we want a particular person or the publisher will say we want Jen on this book. So, yeah, once you've got a body of work, it undoubtedly provides traction for you to get more work. But clearly, if you're trying to break in, that's where we need to talk about sort of agents and voice reels and that kind of thing. And do you come across a lot of new people often? Justine, you were just saying that you are looking for newer voices. So... Is that strictly just going to an agency or do you use word of mouth or would you go to someone like Jennifer and say, hey, look, I'm looking for someone that might have this voice. Do you know someone that might be able, that you could recommend? In fact, I did that to Jennifer a few months ago. <laughs> this sort of set of criteria that the, uh, or the customers audible, audible have, had given us a set of criteria. Um, but uh, yeah, we're always sort of reaching out, trying to find new different types of voices. And then we get people to come in and put down a demo. Um, as Jennifer explained, people may send in a, a sort of voice reel, but very often advertising is the focus of that, which, you know, mm. um, but at least we get a sense of their voice. And then we get them in to put down several pieces, like she said, so we can check that the fluency of their reading, that kind of thing, their versatility. I mean, the thing is you send in a show reel and you've got an audiobook sample on it and, we don't know that you haven't spent a week finessing that. And we have to make it very clear that audio book production is very quick turnaround. There's not a lot of time and you're expected to be able to deliver at a certain amount of audio in a session. And if you fall by the wayside, you don't quite get there. If you're a newie, we'll cut you some slack. But, you know, after a couple of books, you're expected to basically produce to uh, one hour of audio in two hours. So you pick, if you pick up a, any book, the average page in the book runs at two minutes. So if you find it's taking you more than five minutes to read through that page, you know, picking yourself up where you stumble, then probably it's not the area that, you know, 
you should be looking at. Right. And are there courses out there for people to take to help them with, I guess, reading, reading audio books and, and getting into the habit of reading? Or would you just say, just start reading and recording yourself? What's, what's the best way to sort of train yourself to do this? The only one that I really know of who's teaching, and you know, bear in mind I'm based in Melbourne, but in Melbourne we have the absolutely sensational Abby Holmes, who's probably known to many of you, and she does voiceover coaching in general, but she also has developed an audiobook coaching module, and obviously she delivers that online, you know, for people not based locally. We had an author narrator for a business title recently who we had to send Abby to get coaching because she just, you know, had some terrible vocal habits and wasn't going to be able to maintain a reading. So we sent her off to Abby for coaching. Elsewhere, I don't know. I do work with the third-year students at the Victorian College of the Arts, the acting students, which is where I met Michelle Hope. I think I might have seen a couple of other graduates' names in the list too when I looked. So we do a brief module there, which is a sort of introduction. Um, at Square Sound, we've created an audiobook podcast for people who are interested in the industry often because they want to get into it or develop their talent, but also just as a general interest for people who are interested in audiobooks generally. Um, and I've given Alex the link and she'll make that available. So I do encourage everyone to listen to that because it's, you know, got lots of insights. We, one of them features Jen herself. <laughs> but talking to people like we did one with Luke McPherson about finding dialects and accents and one of with a speech pathologist about vocal hygiene, that kind of thing. So um, that's we developed that as a resource for people like you guys. I have done a bit of um, ad hoc training myself just from people. I, I don't set myself up as a trainer. Uh, I, I sort of prefer to read than to train. Um, but if it comes to me, I'm happy to do it. But that that's all been from other act actors saying I've got a book to record can I do a couple of sessions with you or whatever so um, I'm available for that um, stuff as well. That's fantastic. Now you mentioned that as a reader you need to have an arsenal of accents in your pocket per se. If you do not have say the standard Australian accent let's say you have an Eastern European accent or a Western European French or something would that make it more difficult to work in the audiobook sector in the Australian market? Well, obviously, um, most of the books we do are Australian books, but not necessarily. And we're always interested at, at Square Sound, we are always interested in knowing people from diverse cultural backgrounds. As I said, we're trying to find a Samoan man to read a rugby memoir. And we're always very keen to know people's um, accent skills or language skills. Jen, for example, is a fluent German speaker. So we know if we get a title that involves German characters, that Jen just will be able to nail the German accent. So we love knowing what people's abilities and skills are. Some people love doing fantasy novels because you can make up dialects and accents for those. And, you know, but some people would be terrified of that. So we really try to work with what we know about people and people's skills. Um, for example, I love working with the gorgeous Julie Nile, who's a wonderful, wonderful reader. But I happen to know that Julie also has a side hustle as a high school science teacher. So if we had a book with, for example, about botany, um, I'd go, oh, let's get Julie because she's really across science, you know, and, and scientific language. Whereas 
other people go, oh, terrifying. So yeah, we 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 file all of that in our voice bank, all that information we um, we keep and as a resource so for when we need specialised things. But um, yeah, we. I would say that maybe um, having a different accent might limit your opportunities, but it doesn't eradicate them. Mm. On that score about having an arsenal of accents, I would encourage anyone who's, well, anyone who's an actor really, but but anyone particularly who's keen on on doing audiobook narration to just practice that stuff. I mean, you can... I guess some people have a naturally better facility for it, a naturally better ear, if you like. But honestly, if you listen enough to an accent, even if you're unfamiliar with it, and you listen to it repeatedly, you will start to be able to get it into your body and you'll be able to replicate that for whichever character you're doing. But like anything else, it takes rehearsal. But, you know, for anyone who's an aspiring audiobook narrator, yeah, practice every accent. You can get your little lips on, basically. (laughs) There are good resources for accents. So there's the um, International Dialects of English Archive. People like Lee Person and Geraldine Cook, who are prominent dialect coaches in Melbourne, contribute to. So you go onto that and there's recordings of all different accents. So you just say, you know, you go to Ireland and you go to County Cork and there might be five different recordings of different people that gives their gender, their age, whether or not they've lived there all their life. So, you know, um, subject lived in London for five years before returning back. And then there's a there's standard recordings that have all the vowel and consonant sounds. And so you can listen to those. Um, Nell Campbell put me on recently to the British Library actually has uh, uh, dialects recordings. So there are good resources for certain mm. dialects. Um, so, yeah you can get the, the practice in like that by finding out those and yeah just and often people will bring a little sample into the studio on their phone and before they have to go into that character they'll just play a little sample to refresh their memory before they go into it the hardest bit with audiobooks of course is you're often doing multiple ones in the same, same conversation so i think yeah i mentioned last year when i did the forum with adi and i would just done a book with caroline lee and it was the three female protagonists who were close friends. One was Cockney, one was from Roscommon in Ireland, so Leinster Irish, and the other was Glaswegian, and they were in conversation with one another. So you've got to be able to go quick, 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 switch between them, and that is a real mental, you know, agility task that uh, audiobook narration calls for. I've got to say that's also one of the joys of audiobook narration because you don't get the chance to do that on stage. And you know when you've got a when you've got a conversation between three or five or whatever. I think the most characters I ever had in a book was twenty six, all speaking well, all speaking fairly frequently. And then um, there was another book I can think of that was a favourite book of mine that had not only the South African accent but the Greek uh, accent. Well, I'm, you know I'm being broad here, not specific in terms of regions, but just nations. There were Zulu words. Um, it, it was incredibly complex. So the audiobook narrator's job also is to research, you know, not just the sounds, but but the geographical context as well. You know, just so you've you've got a, a way of situating yourself for the person. And this this sort of brings me to a, uh, and maybe it's a question you're going to ask later, but it occurs to me now that often I'm asked, you know, how 
in your preparation, what do you do? You know, it's this, I would say it's essentially the same as preparing for any kind of performance that you have to figure out as much as you can about each of these characters as possible. What they look like, what they eat, what colour their hair is, what their, you know, what their favourite cereal is. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but once, once you're in that and you know what those characters are from the inside and you don't, as Justine said, you don't have a lot of preparation time. So these are sketches, but they have to be, they have to be very well-defined sketches. If you've got a conversation between three people in the way that Justine's described, you can easily go from person to person because you just take off one character, put on the next. And how, let, I just want to talk about when you're given the, uh, the scope to do an audiobook. how long does it take? Let's say it's a general novel of oh, maybe 300 pages or so. How long would that take you to go from preparation to then getting into the studio and laying down that recording? Um, we do, when we get a script, we always get it as a PDF. And just going back to access, obviously the best way to prepare for an audiobook is to read it beginning to end, but not always that happens. And so if you're worried about accents, and you should be because they're often there, um, when you get the PDF, word search the word accent, and then you find on page 300 the words his Israeli accent was more pronounced when he was angry. And if you've spent the last 300 pages reading that person with an Australian accent, you're going to have to go back and do pickups for all that. Yeah. That's a good hack we came up with recently. Just Google a word search accent and you'll know from the start of the book what the accents are because it is often not mentioned until later. Yeah. Okay, so we get a PDF. Um, we, we People often read off iPad um, and uh, we provide an iPad if people don't have one, but some people still like paper, in which case we'll print off a paper copy. But with the PDF, we do a word count and um, we have a formula for knowing, uh, for then calculating how long the book is. Uh, so average book is seven to 10 hours long. You know, it's kind of novel. Uh, some books are really long. Uh, for our students, we record Peter Fitzsimons books, which are about, you know, 25 hours long. But you, we generally try to get the script to the person as far in advance as possible. Sometimes it will be pretty quick, but hopefully you'll have a couple of weeks. We allow two hours in the studio to record every hour of audio. So if we've ascertained the book is 10 hours long based on the word count, um, we will schedule 20 hours in the studio to record that. Um, and then we have our... Uh, the other thing about audiobook production is you, you're doing the edits on the run. So if you make a mistake, we will uh, go back and play back the tape and then drop you in. So you kind of edit... We're editing um, on the run. So we then do some post-production and uh, we always book a schedule uh, a call for what we call pickups, which is where you come and anything that we need to get you to redo, um, we'll get you in for that session, which is normally an hour and normally maybe a week or so later. <laughs> so, yeah, um, in terms of preparation time, you know, I feel, I think sure Jen will agree that the more time you spend preparing, the more prepared you are in the studio and you will be faster in the studio. So just, yeah. Without a doubt, yeah. And even if you're, even if you're pressed for time, you get the book, you know, with under two weeks preparation, which can happen, um, then the very least 
you should do is make sure that you've identified, you know, just skim read it as much as you can, identify the major characters, pick out the accents, all of that kind of stuff. Get to get to the end of the book. You have to get to the end of the book. You have to, um, one way or another. And then you can go back, you know, once you've started, if, if you've only had the time to skim it like that, at least you've got a sense of plot lines, character development, all of that kind of stuff. You've got a starting point. So if you have to start at that level of preparation, preparation, then you can catch up, you know, you can go back and do your more detailed reading. But, yeah, nothing nothing beats a couple of weeks of preparation and uh, looking up your pronunciations, uh, taking notes on accents, you know, giving yourself pointers in the text. I mean, whether it be on the printed page, the hard copy, or on iPad, it's also easy to annotate. I find that I'll highlight things, write little notes to myself about the accent or whatever that are a, remind, a reminder ahead of where... I'm coming up to. So I'm already prepared. I don't need to stop. It's there on the page and I can just keep on going and, you know, integrate that shift. Wow, that's amazing. I want to shift for a moment and talk about equipment because if you're like me and I, I know nothing about audiobooks, I'm thinking, oh, this is something that I can just do out of my home and record out of my home. But I've come to the understanding that that's not necessarily the case. So can you tell us a little bit about where audiobooks are normally recorded and what that process is? Justine? <laughs> uh, so I know that with the whole COVID thing that everyone's looking at what can I do at home, what can I do at home, and, um, you know, thinking about audiobook production. But the reality is I would... I can't know for sure, but the vast majority, I'm going to say 95%, is done in a studio. Uh, so in Melbourne, that will be Belinda or Production Alley or uh, Square Sound, uh, the main ones of us here in Melbourne. Uh, in Sydney, it's Audio Brian, I think Sound Kitchen. Uh, we at Square Sound, we have studio in Sydney as well, so we do recording in Sydney. It's not impossible to record an audio book at home, and Jen has done it, and I, uh, one of our episodes of our podcast is with Rupert Davis, who does everything at home. Um, but this is a man who's invested sort of 30 grand in a professional level, you know, whisper booth and also has 30 years experience of recording audio books, having started with the BBC doing, you know, uh, Philip Pullman books. David Trudinic in Melbourne, he records at home. Uh, he set up a booth during uh, the pandemic last year, but Pretty much the consensus amongst everyone. So David Chudinik, Abby Holmes, Stig, um, I'm not going to speak for Jen, she can speak for herself, but uh, Caroline Lee, who I work with a lot, she's always been approached because she has a website. She's always been approached. And um, during lockdown last year, we did three books together for a, North, a different North American production houses who wanted her and came to her website and said, will you self-record? And she says, no, I do not want to self-record. My, my expertise is in narration. It's not technical. And if I'm trying to self-record, I'm not going to be focused on the narration because I'm too anxious about the technical. So she, she then brings that work to us and we work together with her. So all of those people would tell you for an audio book, that length of material, it's different to doing a voiceover where you can just sort of knock out a few reads over half an hour. People prefer to work in the studio. If you do want to look into getting gear, um, probably... You know, 
you want to go to want to spend at least several hundred bucks on a microphone and whatever kind of interface. A lot of people. I was reading an article, uh, an interview with Will Anderson recently, and he was saying the best thing I ever bought was a Zoom H6 recorder. Um, and Zoom are great if you do want to record stuff yourself. They're five hundred, six hundred dollars, but you'll get your money back. But but the reality is, you as a novice, you're highly unlikely to be asked to self-record on your book. Going to be asked into a studio. Um, I'll, I can share with you a couple of my um, home recording experiences and that will describe to you just how difficult it is. Um, I, do, I do have a, a Yeti Pro, Blue Pro, um, which I have had for years actually. It's still, it's still um, highly regarded by various sound recorders that I've spoken to. It's not the top of the range. There's a very good, um, I, maybe it's in a podcast form now, I'm not too sure, but in the first year of our pandemic uh abby holmes got together with a a couple of other sound recorders uh, well well respected sound recordists and uh i'm pretty sure that recording is somewhere at the session of you know the kinds of things you would look kinds of equipment you would look for the the pop-up setup that you would need for your home all of that kind of stuff so i keep feeling like i'm going to do that like i'm going to get my pop-up panels but it's um uh so far i haven't so when I record at home, I and I found this hack on the net, uh, I uh, get a plastic tub, you know, like a storage tub. I pad it with pillows. I sit the Yeti Pro in the centre of the pillows. I attach it to my computer. I put my hat rack behind me. I put two doonas over me. And then I start recording. And, you know, it's kind of ridiculous and and frustrating um but you can get it done if you need to so that's what i do if i need to do pickups or i need to do something where i just can't get to a studio um my most recent prolonged experience of recording uh in <laughs> under those conditions was when i had to quarantine in perth last year in a hotel and i had a friend who dropped off a pelican case which is a soundies recording case um with inbuilt padding it was perfect for sticking the, I had my Yeti with me and my computer and I used the same Duna arrangement, um, but it was a nightmare. The hotel, the hotel has great ambient sound because it's so dead. The room is so dead, but the extraneous noise is the difficult thing. This is where, you know, you need, look, you need a studio for so many reasons, but, you know, the sound of people opening and closing doors, doing what they're doing in their next, you know, including very loud sex in their next room. Uh, you know, flights coming in at, at a regular and you have to stop and go back. So it would take, it, it took me twice as long, easily twice as long to record under those conditions. So unless you've got a very good setup, uh, it's far more efficient and the end product is far better to record in a studio, I'd say, just then. Yeah, as soon as you open a microphone, you discover how noisy the area is. So, you know, we're lucky thus far today that my neighbour across the road, Harley, hasn't started it up. <laughs> but to tell you a story, I recently directed an audiobook in Auckland, obviously not in person. It was directed by Zoom. So the talent was in a sound, a sound, a sound studio, professional sound studio in Auckland, suburban Auckland, with the sound engineer, and I was directing it via Zoom. And um, at one point, Auckland said, um, sorry, we're going to have to stop for a moment. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, what's the problem? And Phil, the sound engineer, said, oh, my neighbour's gardens have arrived and they've started up a leaf blower 
And apparently this, this happens weekly and he bribes him with beer to go away and come back several hours later. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so definitely using a studio is the right way to go if, if you want to get into this business. For a quality product, absolutely. Yeah. And for the, ex and for the experience, there is, there is something, uh, as there is with any good director, there's something good uh, and great about the trust relationship you develop with producers. They understand your rhythms, you understand theirs, and so the whole process is far more fluid. My job is to support the talent and enable them to get the best performance. So I'm listening, I'm checking stuff, you know, there's checking pronunciations, checking references, uh, all that kind of stuff. So that is what I'm there for. Um, and I loved it when Edwina Wren once described me um, to a work experience kid when who was observing when we were reading a book, was that Justine is my safety net. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's, that's yeah. All right. So I want to I want to jump a little bit back uh, for a moment, and I want to talk about publishers. Now, Justine, and, and I guess Jennifer, this will go for you as well. Do publishers just know to contact you directly, or? Um, will they say, like Jennifer said, you know, sometimes a publisher will say, I want Jennifer on my book. Generally speaking, the, there is a, um, an, an organisation between the studio and the publisher, that's the audio book publisher. So we're talking about Belinda and Wave Sound, primarily in Australia. So Wave Sound will have a, Wave Sound will have a relationship with um, Alan and Unwin, for example, we're doing their book. And so Alan and Wave Sound and Alan Unwin will say, yep, this is the book we want to do. And then Wave Sound, who we produce for, we're a production house, will come to us and say, all right, this is the book. So the only publisher I know that seems to be going direct to um, narrators to self-record is Simon and Schuster. That uh, everyone else will be working through a um, audiobook publisher and a production house. Sorry about that. I just had a little technical issue, so I froze for a moment. Apologies. Yeah. <laughs> um, interesting. And so, Jennifer, you said that sometimes you have a relationship with publishers as well. So do uh, they sometimes come directly to you? More, uh, rarely. More often through production houses. Like, right, okay. Um, you know, they're, they're the intermediaries. Square Sound, Belinda, yeah. Sure. Okay. Audible. That's amazing. <laughs> um, so we just have a couple more minutes before I open it up to questions. And I did want to talk a little bit about Audible because it is the largest producer and retailer of audiobooks in the US, owned by Amazon. Um, do you do they do they source a lot of talent from outside of the US or are they just sort of working with other companies within other countries to bring books into Audible. How does that relationship work? Okay, so Audible uh, launched into Australia in 2015, which was when we were starting Square Sound. I'd been at the ABC for 25 years before that. Um, and uh, Square Sound got contract to produce Australian content for Audible. Uh, and we still do that now. Um, and a couple of studios in Sydney also produce content for Audible. Audible are based in Sydney and um, they're very become fairly Sydney centric. So that anything that 
has to be done in Melbourne. There's the narrator they want. So I just did um, a Graham Simpson Audible original and he wanted it done in Melbourne because we've done his earlier books and he wanted it to come to us. And also it was set in Melbourne and he very much wanted Melbourne performers to do it. Uh, so Audible will use us in their Sydney studios uh, to create their Australian content, um, which is often audiobooks, but it's also original content and podcasts. So, you know, um, whomever they're about. We, uh, we just recorded a Julian Morris podcast for them. Julian Morris makes it easier. Um, but they, they are like Amazon, you know, they're, of course, owned by Amazon and um, where they create their own content, but they'll also publish other people's, you know. So we, we work a lot for Wave Sound and we also work for Hachette, um, the publisher, who we direct, we do their audiobooks direct. Um, and so everyone can get their content up on Audible. So whether or not it's produced by Audible or Belinda or Wave Sound or Penguin Random House, we produce for them too, or Hachette, it all ends up on Audible because mm. it's the primary, you know, it's the one that everyone knows and goes to and helps make Jeff Bezos richer so he can build another rocket. <laughs> Before the pandemic. Yeah. Exactly. When I think of how that money could be spent. Anyway. <laughs> Going into space. <laughs> Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I would like to now open it up to questions. If anyone has any questions for Justine or Jennifer. Thank you so much. It was really informative. Um, just had a question about, you mentioned voice reels at the beginning. I have a voice reel um, and um, I was just, well, I don't have any narration on it, but it's something I would like to get into. Is it worth um, having a separate reel for the narration or should I incorporate it into my voice demo? Um, and then a sort of second question to that, um, I'm with an acting agent and they have, uh, they do voices as well. Um, um, and But I've heard sort of going, having your voice through your acting agent is not as sort of good as going through like a, a voice agent that's just doing voices. So just wanted your thoughts on that as well. Uh, yeah, I, as I said, an advertising show really, you know, um, we do get sent them, Marianne deals with them, but um, she's probably going to want to hear audiobook as well. So it's probably worth maybe doing a separate one. But, uh, yeah, as, as Jen said, with maybe three or four examples of different sort of styles of material. And I would always say to people, um, if you want to put something down, do something, don't decide this is the time to challenge yourself reading Dostoevsky or something like that. You know, choose the kind of books where, that are being published in audio books that are being published in Australia, something that you connect to and engage with because, yeah, it, don't do the intellectual exercise, just do something you enjoy, you know. So there's that. Yeah, look, to be honest, a lot of, I'm, I'm not saying that it does, we don't go to, we don't go looking for someone to the actors agency, but yeah, first port of call in this line of works tends to be EM Voices, RMK, Melbourne Voices Management. Out, you know, we deal with them a lot. But I mean, you've got to take what you can get on with with agents, don't you? So work with what you've got. Thank you. Hello. Hello there. Hello. Yes, Hi. I'm coming. I'm coming through. Sorry, Zoom is not particularly friendly with a screen reader, I'm afraid. No. Um, 
I'm a blind person, and to my knowledge, I'm the only blind professional voiceover artist in Australia. And having listened to probably more audiobooks than most, one of the things I'm struggling with is not accents. It's not a um, setup. I've got running a, a U87 or a 416 through a, an Avalon preamp and a Neve 1073. So there's no issue there with production equipment. But one of my pro challenges is that um, Braille transcription that I do normally for voiceover work is prodigiously expensive. It's about 50 cents a sheet. So if I'm looking at doing a 300 to 400 page book, it runs to about a thousand pages. And one of the troubles I'm trying to fix at the moment is using a single line braille display to read audiobooks. And it's isolating the rattle of the pins because I've got such acute hearing, I can pick all of those things up. How far ahead therefore, if I'm reading a single line, do you normally read ahead of what you're narrating? Because with full-size Braille pages, that's not an issue. Wow. But with the Braille display, it is. It's, it's, I mean, as I said, if, if you want to all Google how I operate a studio, there's videos up there of that. Um, and I do have a production background. I'm well-connected with narrators both in the US and the UK. And Audible has approached me several times to do audiobooks because I've, you know, I've listened to thousands of them as a, as, a, as a listener. But my challenge is this one big hurdle. And I find it really frustrating because... I have always loved audiobooks. I've, you know, pick up the production differences between the UK and the US, and there are differences. Um, and so I just would love some guidance from all, you know, all or some of you as to how I might get around this problem. And it's a, it's a curly one. So you're wanting you're wanting to read further ahead than one line ahead. Is that is that the yes? Because the because the problem you've got with with full size braille, obviously you've got you know a line of page, so you can read ahead to see when a character talks, or you know yes. I, mean, I can do. I've done animated characters for cartoons, and I can do six different accents in three sentences. That's not an issue. Mm -hmm. The problem I've got is because it's in single line, it's very because the braille's electronically moving under your fingers as you're mm -hmm. reading, and mm -hmm. so it's a physical challenge of reading ahead. Uh, it's probably hard to explain it without you visually being able to see it. Yeah, but, no, I think I think I'm getting the the idea. <laughs> well, apologies for the long-winded nature of it, but it's no, not it's, at all, not at all. It's um, it, it sounds like a quite a knotty problem, and I, I'm is. I'm I wouldn't have any idea how to um how to uh, mount that uh, hurdle, that technical hurdle, just in my that, but. Um, I generally read, as a rule, two or three lines ahead of the yeah. line reading. So I understand your need to be, to be, to see what's coming up. I understand yeah. how frustrating that must be in terms of fluency. Justin, oh. do you know any anything more about this? No, not at all. The only thing, um, the only thing I can offer is that the uh, ABC's disability correspondent, a woman called Naz Campanella. Yes. You'll see on the ABC regularly, she is blind. And yep. my understanding is she uses for reading her script. She uses um, JAWS, which I've got, which uh, if, you yeah. listen, if you listen carefully. Yeah, yeah. That, that's all I know about that. <laughs> that's it now. That's exactly what she uses. The, the problem with reading with JAWS is that you've got, and whilst you could do it for something where you've got a, a relatively standard delivery, such as news reporting, if you're doing this... <laughs> Um, trying to do characters and changing with those would be incredibly complex. There is a blind or visually impaired fellow, Pete Guston, who does all of Fox in the US, but he did have sight for a long time. Um, and again, he's using an American accent most of the time. So 
I don't know. It's I'm sorry to be so difficult, but it's no, it's no. a real. It's I mean I can do my own production. As I said, I can overuse the Nyman or the the four one six Rupert. I know very well. Um, have done for a long time, and quite a lot of other narrators, both you know in the UK and the US too, who have all been trying to work out ways how I can get around this, and they've all coming up with the same thing. We're not quite sure how we can get you past it because I'd love to. Yeah. And, you know, I've I've got the the ears to do it, and probably, yeah. you know, more hours of listening than than most of you. I would I would confidently say. I, I would definitely agree with you. I was going to say, have you have you had a conversation with Vision Australia yet about this? No, I I spoke to Vision Australia a while ago, um, because I knew people who set up their studios back in the eighties. Yeah. And the challenge is again, it's you either read one-handed with the rail display. And because I've had spinal injuries, the nerves in my right finger are not as sensitive as my left. Oh. So it's, I'm so frustrated because I would, I, I mean, I genuinely believe I can do it well, but I'm physically limited by the limitations of you know, braille costs. I mean, if I don't know what the hourly rates are, and I know they're different here to what they are in the UK, and I'm not sure whether people get, um, whether you receive sort of royalties with book sales, things like that. But by the time I factor in braille costs, you know, if I'm ordering 2000 sheets of braille paper, that costs 700 bucks. Um, you know, and I've already built, I've built a $45,000 studio. So, you know, it gets very expensive. Um, I, it's from what you say, you're ahead of the game with Jen, than Jen and I. I don't know that we've mm -hmm. unfortunately, we can offer because you've already done all the work. Um, I do need to, I feel incumbent on me to point out that audio, the audiobook industry is not particularly lucrative. No, um, I realise that. And so really, yeah, um, some, the rates, the rates vary. Um, mm. UK rates, we often lose work to the UK. Yeah. UK lower than here. Yeah, um, I But it's that. not well re, well reimbursed, really, mm. and there's no royalties, residuals, royal owners. Roll over yeah. just a flat rate, and that's it. You get paid on the um, it's based on the length of the book. Mm. So if the book is deemed a ten-hour book. The rate rate will relate to the, that rather than the amount of time you spend working yeah. on it. Because mm -hmm. it's usually done on per produced hour, and yeah. that's why that's where my problem is. Because if I use mm -hmm. the embosser to do that, by the time you you know, as, as we say, let's say it was a four hundred page book, let's mm. say twelve hundred pages. Let's do the costs on that. That's five or six hundred dollars worth of braille paper, and it then becomes uneconomically viable. And, and well, this is, I, I make a loss, really. Yeah, and then and that's for me. That's really sad because okay. I would so love to do it. Where you are? Are you? I'm. In I'm in. Or? I'm in North Sydney. Yes. North Sydney. Okay. Yeah. Do you have an agent? Yeah, I've got. A, I'm with RMK. Oh, okay. Well, they used to have, I forget his name. But they used Matt Ponsonby. Matt Ponsonby, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they can't help you? Audio Brian? Audio Brian, I, I think, you know, RMK have said to me, you'd be brilliant for audiobooks. And as I said, yeah. there's a person from Audible who approached me, but the problem is still the transcription expenses. Yeah. For, for voiceovers in general, it's not so difficult because I'm doing corporates. You generally yeah, find yeah, even yeah. the long ones are 20, 30 pages. I can absorb yeah. those costs without yeah. a problem. Okay, so they can help uh, you with that then. Yeah, okay. and I've done audio description as well. For, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Dogs and other things like that. But okay. I'm sorry for my question being such a tricky <laughs> one, but it's been lovely to be a part of this. It's It's been a real pleasure. So thank you for allowing me no, to ask No, thank you, and I'm, I'm sorry we can't furnish you with more. I, <laughs> I totally understand that frustration of not oh. being 
able to to read ahead. That, that must yeah. be so annoying. If anyone yeah. needs help with accents, come and talk to me. Because <laughs> I'm a bit of a specialist in that sort of space. Right. So if you need to flick between going to the Transvaal and going to Northern Ireland, I can do it for you. There you are. Andrew. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, Justine and Asabi, what a, a wonderful way to spend the afternoon. Um, my question to Jennifer, having built up uh, years of, of experience, um, how did you build up the reality of, or the experience of building up the stamina that you require uh, to narrate for an hour or, or two? Um, and I ask that as somebody who comes from a, a music background voice, and I know the practicalities of being at home and working on the schools and working for a long time in isolation, which is what you have to do when you're a narrator. But I was interested in this probably many ways to the top of the mountain that I would be very interested in, in hearing how you, you built that up. Look, uh, it's a curious thing. I and Justine will vouch for me on this. I like a long day in the studio. In the studio, some people prefer two hours, four hours. I like an eight-hour day in the studio. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is that once you enter the world, uh, that gives you your that that maintains your connection. That gives you your fluency. Um, you know that you're in the story for a longer period of time. And that is what propels you. I, I don't know that I've built up any particular stamina. I think I've always been like that as an audiobook narrator. I've always liked a longer day and I still do. Oh, um, <laughs> you, you can get- I like that, yeah. <clears throat> You can get uh, vocally fatigued sometimes, but you, but also, you know, I mean, I guess now this is where the stamina comes in. As a theatre actor in particular, possibly less so for film and TV, but certainly as a theatre actor, you have to develop a very strong vocal technique. You have to uh, have developed an instrument that will withstand eight shows a week of, if you're a musical performer like I am, as well as doing drama and comedy, uh, you, you have to have got your instrument to the point where it will take that level of punishment um, and, you know, still get up the next, the next day and be able to function. So it's more about, I think, uh, Justine used the phrase vocal health just a little while ago. Um, I think there's, that, that's so important. So, you know, look, I know some people who, who smoke and drink like it's going out of style and they still sound like a million bucks. I'm not that person, so I don't smoke. Um, I'm not drinking at the moment. I'm in what I like to call abstemious August. I've invented my own month. Um, but, uh, you know, that whatever you can do to build, up your, to build up your breathing capacity, I mean, that helps a lot. When you're sitting in a studio for eight hours at a time, you can't really slump. You've, you've still got to breathe right down to the base of your breathing capacity, for instance. So you have to have a spinal awareness. You have to have an intercostal, uh, you know, awareness. Uh, you have to understand your instrument and you have to be practised in the use of your instrument. If you don't have that, then, then you're starting from a, a less secure base, if you like. I, I would say that's where the endurance comes from. Yeah. But, yeah, I, um, what can I say? I like to be in the studio, you know, in, in that world for as long as possible at one stretch. Great. I mean, as, uh, as a singer, I'm, I'm aware of a lot of background things and I was wondering how much that would 
translate or if I would have to start right at the beginning again. But no, no, no. If you're a singer, if you're a singer, then and it depends what kind of singing you do. But if you're a singer, then you already understand that your breathing is not to here. Your breathing is all the way down to you know your bum. Yeah, classical singer. Yeah. But you've literally uh, from in my training, I trained at NIDA 105 years ago, and in my training, it was all about. Uh, the use of image to expand your your vision of and your and your kinesthetic experience of your body, and once you get into the practice of doing that, even if you're in a recording studio and you're sitting down, you're not you're not on stage or in front of a camera or whatever, your body will naturally kick in with with its um, accustomed responses, with the necessary response for the length of a musical phrase or the, yeah. le- or the length of a, a paragraph or whatever. So I think you've got a head start if you're a singer. But it is, it is actually music on the page. Yeah. Oh, it totally is. It totally is. Thank you very much. For uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so if you've got a musical repertoire, that's... that's. <clears throat> Can I just jump in there and just say, um, as I said earlier, that 95% of audiobook production is it would be unusual. I mean, Jen is exceptional. Um, we generally call people for a four-square sound because we think that is the optimum. Some people who like to go for longer, like Jen and Caroline Lee, you know, her ideal call is nine to three. But certainly for novices or less experienced people, we call them for a four-hour call. I know that for Linda, often call people for a six-hour call, but... Um, but yeah, normally it's shorter calls. When I was at the ABC, where I was for many years, the received wisdom at the ABC was um, a half day call for single voice was the best in terms of performance, vocal fatigue. I mean, cause I often have to pull the pin on calls because people, I can hear them audibly fatiguing. And with that also comes brain fade where they're just making more mistakes and it just becomes counterproductive to keep going and just say like, we're stopping now. And if it means we have to add extra call at the end of the booking, we will prefer to do that than stretch out the actual call on the day. Thank you for that. Now, there's one question coming up about uh, payment and rates. And Simone hasn't got vision, but she's going to unmute herself and ask it over the over the airways. So, Simone. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, um, just wanted to see if, thanks guys for all this information. It's been amazing. Um, Yeah, just a little bit about contracts and rates and how it works. I mean, obviously there's normal standard rates for for voiceover and obviously that's more commercial related, but um, just wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about how that would work, um, especially if you're, obviously if your voice is being used worldwide versus just in Australia only, just yeah standard rates and I guess how you you know what you should be looking at you're, you're going to be appalled I have to say right now every all every one of you is going to be appalled it's so far different from commercial rates oh yeah um, <laughs> most, and most books we do um the the only reason they wouldn't go worldwide is if the publisher has only negotiated Australia Commonwealth rights. So I did a fabulous book last year called Honey Bee, read by the gorgeous Harvey Zolinski, who Jen is very fond of too. And I know, for example, that wasn't released in the US because they divvied up the rights situation, but it's available here in New Zealand and Britain. Basically, so that finished hour, so as I said, it's the 10 hour book. Your rate is per finished hour, and that rate can be as low as $110 up to. Um, Penguin Random House pay quite well. They pay $250, but 
your um if you're starting out you're going to be at the bottom end and it can be very hard to uh, start negotiating your way up um high profile talent obviously that's a different question that's a case by case thing so someone particularly high profile who's going to bring an audience to a book maybe you're getting 400 500 an hour but basically you're looking at very little money so i think if you're were a first timer doing a book you'd be extreme, can just be, have to consider yourself extremely lucky to get $150 per finished hour. So when you factor in that it's, um, we allow two hours to record one finished hour and your preparation, you'll see it's really, um, it's a very, it's the bottom end of the industry. Sadly. Abby Holmes, we, we're talking about this to see the rates increase because we think they're appalling. Mm. We are ashamed to have to offer them very often. But what we need to do is try and get the industry on board to lift rates um, here. But then, as I also said earlier, we sometimes lose work to the UK because the rates there are lower. So it's it's incredibly fraught. Thank very competitive. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. I'm about to hand back to Asabi, but just one thing I am going to ask just I am going to ask Justine if she could just send me uh, some of the names of the uh, the libraries or the resources that she's referred to, and I will email them all to you. So stand by for that. And now, thank you. Over to Asabi. Thank you. Well, Justine and Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a fantastic chat. I know I've learned quite a bit, and I hope our members have learned as much as well. Um, again, thank you so much for giving us your time. Pleasure. Lovely to meet you on Cyberspace. <laughs> yes, you too. You too. Great I'll to see you, Justine. I'll see you in the studio sometime, huh? Um, I'll also mention that um, the chat I did last year for the Equity Foundation with Abby and Steve is still up. And also, and you mentioned the one Abby did with sound engineers about mm -hmm. Yeah, that is also on the foundation SoundCloud. So mm. they're resources people can go to too. Right. All right. Thank you, ladies, so much for joining us. We really appreciated hearing right. your yeah. insight on the industry and what it takes to be in it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye bye. Thank bye -bye. you, Nabi. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Thank Alice. you so much. Thanks. It was lovely Thank to you. see you all. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.